You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Kevin Kelly, Senior Maverick at Wired, reading from The Inevitable. Thousands of years from now, when the historians review the past, our ancient time here at the beginning of the third millennium will be seen as an amazing moment. This is the time when inhabitants of this planet first link themselves together into one very large thing. Later, that very large thing would become even larger, but you and I are alive at that moment when it first awoke. Future people will envy us, wishing that they could have witnessed the birth that we saw. It was in these years that humans began animating inert objects with tiny bits of intelligence, weaving them into a cloud of machine intelligences, and then linking billions of our own minds into this single super mind. This convergence will be recognized as the largest, most complex, and most surprising event on the planet up until this time. Kevin Kelly is the co-founder of Wired Magazine. He's also editor and publisher of the Cool Tools website. He co-founded the ongoing Hackers Conference and was involved with the launch of The Well, the pioneering online community started in 1985. His books include New Rules for the New Economy, Out of Control, and What Technology Wants. His new book is The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Thank you for joining me, Kevin. It's always a privilege and an honor to be with you. This is such a wonderful history of both the recent past and the near future. And it's like one of those uh, sets of gongs where you they clack together, they go forward and mm. backward. And I, I like that aspect of it. Talk about creating how your journeys down memory lane inspired your perceptions mm. of the future. Yeah, so um, I talk a little bit in this book about certain kinds of trends as being inevitable. And, and the natural question to ask is, upon what basis am I making that claim? And I think um, I make it on based on history. So I'm an optimist primarily because of the historical rep- record. So my confidence in where we're going is based somewhat on the fact that I feel that we can pretty clearly see where we have been. And looking back at the last couple of decades, we can see that there is um, a certain propensity for technology to do certain things that are really rooted in its, the very nature of the technology itself and not in any cultural implementation of those technologies. And so what I'm trying to do is look at the natural biases in technology for the last many decades and saying it's going to continue in that same direction for the future couple decades. And the the trend, the trajectory is actually coming from the fact that I'm looking back at the past in order to see where it's going into the future. One of the things I think that's so interesting about this book is that the forces you describe are independent of the hardware. This isn't necessarily right. a projection. We're going to have have a little car, then a smaller right, car, right, right, or right. a faster plane, and a faster plane. This is a look at 
the basic nature of the forces. And I think that you're, you make a great uh, analogy about the power of the phone. Well, that's good. The computer, that's good. The phone plus, plus the modem plus the computer, that is something completely different. Right, exactly. So I, I, I'm trying to look at the large-scale biases and tendencies in technology and not into the specifics, which I believe are unpredictable. So the way I would say it is um, telephones, the telephone system is pretty inevitable almost on any planet that you would want to go visit in the galaxy. It's once they have electricity, they're going to have, and wires, they're going to have a telephone system. So the telephone is inevitable, but the iPhone is not, okay? Mm -hmm. The internet was inevitable, but Twitter was not. So the large forms, like, like a quadruped, was inevitable in biology, but a you know, a zebra was not. Not. <laughs> so the, 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 the large-scale form is kind of determined by the physics, but the specifics is completely unpredictable. So what I'm not trying to do is talk about what the next iPhone is or whether Apple's going to succeed or not, uh, whether the cars will get smaller. What I'm trying to talk about is the larger-scale shape that technology itself is, is, is creating. I'd like you to talk about what is the technium. I think it's this comes from your last book. I think this is a fascinating term, and it underpins to a certain degree this book. Yeah, that's true. So um, there's several different ways to, to, to kind of describe it, but one way to, to say is we, we have a lot of technology in our lives, and a lot of the technology that we have today, something like the microphone that I'm speaking into right now or the device that you're listening to this with, it's so complicated that it takes thousands of other technologies to create it. And each of those thousands of technologies would in, it, would in themselves require hundreds of other technologies to create that. So you have a web of maybe millions of different technologies that are interdependent on each other. So you need a saw to make a hammer, and you need the hammer to make the saw. And each of those parts, each of those individual technologies alone are not living. Your spoon is not a living thing. Your shoe is not a living thing. The um, pliers is not living. My shoe may have some living things in it. Exactly. <laughs> but it is itself not a living thing. But mm -hmm. when you connect them all together in this way and you make this network of interdependent technologies in the millions, that system itself begins to exhibit lifelike properties. That, that system of all the interrelated and interdependent technologies I call the technium. It's not a single individual technology. It's more than even just a bunch of technologies. It's the system of technology that we have, which requires intermediate technologies to make technologies A to make technology B, technology B to make technology C, which is required to make technology A. And that recursive circular sense that all networks have, that's what the technium is. It's the system that we have. And that system has behaviors that are not present in any individual parts. And there's lifelike behavior of that whole system that's not present in an individual technology. Um, one of the things you point out early on, and I think this is uh, kind of stunningly both obvious and obvious, 
tremendously obscure is that the most important discovery, maybe of the past millennium, is not any single kind of technology, but the scientific process. And this is a, a theme of the book, that this is a book about process, not products. Exactly, right. So uh, to just to rephrase what you just said, that you know we've had a lot of very important inventions, and scientists often make lists about the penicillin, you know, the transistor, the calendar. But really, foremost among all of them is the scientific method, which is not a single method, but really a kind of a cluster of different methods, which we still are adding to. So parts of the scientific method, like... Um, uh, placebos or double-blind experiments are all very recent additions to mm -hmm. that core. And um, it is in that process of the scientific method that enables us to generate many more new inventions. Mm -hmm. So it's like mm -hmm. the ultra-golden goose of laying, the golden, laying eggs. And um, uh, through the scientific process, we can then arrive at all these other inventions that we could not get to any other way. And... Um, that process um, is a process and not a product. And in the same way, one of the shifts that we've been seeing in the last couple of decades that will continue to go forward is a shift away from nouns to verbs. The verbification of the world. Exactly. So things that are, that are static and fixed are less important and less valuable to us than processes that are ongoing and, and can generate change. So this idea of having rules that are amendable. I mean, for me, the, my favorite part of the U.S. Constitution is the part of the Constitution that can amend itself. Mm -hmm. It can say, well, here's how you change it. So, so, so we are... We are understanding that everything is in the process of being mutated, or changed, uh, of being malleable, of becoming, and that um, uh, even life itself, even our own bodies, are in this kind of continuous state of, of changing, and that that shift in perspective is very, really valuable because we are changing, and therefore everything <clears throat> about how we approach from our legal system to our politics to our identity all have to also be in a process of flux. Well, that's really interesting because I think one of the things that, for me at least, we often like to think of ourselves as discrete human beings the same, right. but I, I think that Kurt Vonnegut nailed it back with uh, Breakfast of Champions. We're walking chemical reactions. Right, exactly. And that's, I think, that the thrust of this book is this is an action-packed book. Mm -hmm. that it's all about the kind of actions that are all around us and right. that are completely changing us. You mentioned the word becoming. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the first force that you describe. Mm -hmm. That's one of the less less terrifying ones. Some of these <laughs> ones, I have to admit, I found a bit scary. Mm -hmm. um, I, you start out with the idea of software upgrades. And I, the way you presented that, I, I started to realize that they are the equivalent of uh, personal hygiene. Yes, exactly, right. And in, in fact, sometimes it's called like um, software hygiene or whatnot. But this idea that um, anything that we put on our into our computers or our devices is really again going back to this lifelike aspect mm -hmm. that they're not really very not, they're not as mechanical as they are lifelike in the sense that we have to treat them 
more like they were organisms that needed to be maintained, kept clean, replenished, nurtured, and um, as if you were having, uh, as if they were a pet or as if they were an animal or a crop. And so the, the notion of um, the fact that you, when you purchase something digital, you're entering in a relationship with that thing that, you, that may require ongoing upgrades, ongoing um, updates that you're um, in a relationship with it rather than a one-time event. You, t- you say that the technium makes holes in our heart. Yeah, yeah. How, how, what do you mean by that? So it seems to be one of the psychological states of humans is to be um, searching for things, to be seeking more. And technology is very good at creating in us desires we didn't know we had and maybe even desires we did not have until the moment when we were awakened to them by technology. So there's a very famous comedy bit by C.K. Lewis about the fact that we're on an airplane and we're this amazing state where we're flying through the air at 500 miles an hour to another place in an air-conditioned thing, and we're complaining about the Wi-Fi, that the Wi-Fi doesn't work. (laughs) Okay, so, so this was like, there's a hole in our heart that did not exist before. This idea that we'd had to have really good connection is a new demand, a new desire, a new hole that did not exist before the technology made it possible. And so so technology is instrumental in creating these holes, but these holes are good because that's what propels us to make new things, to make new discoveries, to try and satisfy them, to increase the possibilities in the world, to keep making the uh, new and the novel. And um, it's somewhat driven by the fact that, that we have these new absences, these new hungers, these new desires that we did not have before. I like the idea of having new absences. That's a yeah, really yeah, yeah. interesting idea. Right. We are much concerned these days with dystopia. Mm. Occasionally people want to talk about utopia, but that's Mm. pretty much off the table at this Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nobody's thinking that's going to happen. You have this idea of protopia. Mm -hmm. What is that? Yeah, so so dystopia is the... um, Well, utopia is the idea that we come to this state of perfection, or at least harmony, where everything is kind of hunky-dory, and we have this... um, exalted, elevated life. Dystopia is the opposite, where everything is is turned upside down, it's all going to hell, it's just this horrendous mess. And um, that is the general staple for Hollywood movies, because it's very cinematic. I mean, mm-hmm. things are blowing up, things are collapsing. Protopia is, I guess, somewhere in the middle. It's this idea that we are progressing and we are proceeding forward and by small amounts. So it's a optimistic view, but it's just an optimism by a very small threshold, tiny little delta. So whereas 49% of the, of the world may be terrible, harmful, crap, awful, if 51% is positive, then that 2% delta 
is what protopia is about. It's meaning that tomorrow will be just a tiny little bit better than yesterday. And that if we can take that tiny marginal edge of betterment, creating 2% more than we destroy each year, and we can compound it every year, that's what we get civilization. That's what society is, is this small, incremental, tiny crawl forward towards a better world. And that's what I sort of believe is happening, that, that we're, I'm a protopian, I think we have protopia. I really like that. You know, this book is that you personally in this mm-hmm. book are very positive throughout the book. Uh, I, I also love, uh, is it Clifford Stoll? Is it? Yeah. Uh, his prediction, he makes mm-hmm. this prediction, and it's a perfect example of uh, Arthur C. Clarke's, one of Arthur C. Clarke's laws, which mm-hmm. is that if an elderly scientist predicts, that, says that something is impossible, you can absolutely count that it is going to come to pass. Well, actually, what Arthur C. Clarke said was, if an elderly statesman says that something is possible, you should believe him. Mm-hmm. But if it, if it says that it's impossible, don't believe him. Right. Okay. Right. So this is uh, uh, Stoll talking about... Clifford the- Stoll, who was a professor, mm-hmm. uh, astrophysicist, actually, maybe a graduate student, um, who got involved in online very early, and he wrote a very fabulous book, uh, The Cuckoo's Nest, I think, detailing his exploits in tracking down some very early hackers into mm-hmm. his system. So he was very he was very at ease and um, expert in telecommunications in the early online world. But he was very wrong about what was coming because he believed that people would not read any kind of news online, that people would never sell things online, that this that the commerce, online was complete stupid total what he called baloney i mean he just was so wrong about it in many ways including the fact that 25 years later he had a business selling klein bottles hand-blown <laughs> glass online himself uh, back i remember back in the i think late 1980s when I was online, I was not. I was working for a company called Quotron, and they were actually on the internet. They transmitted stock quotes electronically back and forth, and they used the internet a lot. And I was able to access emails. One of the things that I really enjoyed about Quotron was he got to read the news groups, hmm. the Usenet news groups, <clears throat> which were kind of, in a sense, an early form yeah. of the web. Yeah. And I will never forget there was a fellow named James Kibo who would do all his posts in all caps. Mm. People really did not like this fellow. But he said at one point that there was a, a there were news groups, it was a very complicated political process to create a news group, unless you went into alt. In alt, anybody could create any news group, just it would right, happen. Right. And he said at one point that, he said, eventually there will be an alt news group for every human on the planet. Right. <laughs> and that actually, to a certain extent, turned out to be the case. Yeah, it's called Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that uh, this gets to something that you talk about, that um, how much of the net is personal, that we think of the internet 
as being this big thing that is run by Facebook and all these other people, mm-hmm. but you point out that only 40% of it mm-hmm. is, is commercial. Yeah, yeah. So it's, there's a kind of a, a long tail phenomena where the biggest companies and the biggest presences have outsized images on, but if you tally up the total amount of content or material made elsewhere, it's very significant. It's the long tail, which can sum up to be equal to the head, to the big boys. And so um, we often forget about the, the long tail of the internet, which is the millions of smaller groups who have web pages put up for anything you can imagine, which is all being generated by, written by somebody, photographed by somebody. And a lot of this material is for either personal reasons, charitable reasons, or governmental duty reasons, not non-commercial. So the non-commercial aspect of it is significant. And um, the reason why that's significant is, is that, uh, or, or the, what, what drives us to do things is, is less and less money, I think, and more and more other things like status. If you think about most of the content of Facebook, is not being made for people to sell. I mean, it's being made out of genuine attempts to communicate. Well, this, I think, goes to, to something that uh, we're learning about human health, in a sense, mm. that human health, one of the best markers for maintaining good human health is having a sense of purpose. Yeah. And I think that the Internet is an excellent example of that mm-hmm. human uh, trait. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about the billions of hours of, of labor put into this, um, let's say just the web, which by the way, is just barely 9,000 days old. Boy, that is amazing. 9,000, so everything that has been done, the billions of billions of hours put into writing and creating everything for it, all 9,000 days. And, um, the, you know, a, a much, much of that coming from um, people's not being paid to do it, but just being wanting to in order to communicate. So this sense of this force becoming, mm-hmm. what is becoming and how is it? I mean, we've been talking about how it plays out a little bit in terms of uh, this process of change. It's the it's a the. Um, it's transformation. Yeah, it's constant transformation. It's constant, uh, un, um, uh, you know, undergoing change to, to becoming something else. Um, it's this endless upgrades, the perpetual, um, perpetual transformation into something that was from from something that could be into something that is, and so. One of the effects of that for us as, as consumers is that we um, have been assigned to become perpetual newbies. I like that, that concept e- of us. Eternal, as- <laughs> eternal newbies where we are always going to be um, the new people having to learn the new thing. So no matter how many computer languages that you have already learned, Next year, there'll be another one that you have to learn again. Um, no matter how many devices you have mastered, and next year, there'll be another new device, VR headsets, whatever it is that you will have to struggle with. 
learning a whole new vocabulary. There'll be a whole new interface, a whole new set of gestures to learn in VR. Um, with AI, there'll be a whole new set of, of protocol and language and shortcuts that we'll need to learn. So we are destined to always be the new one on the block who doesn't know anything and has to learn stuff new. And doesn't matter how old you are or how accomplished you are, that's the permanent state. It's the wily E. Coyote vacation of humanity we're always just about to step off that cliff and go oh my gosh right exactly we have the rug pulled out from under us <laughs> i i i think too but i think what you point out is important is that um it's a, a lot kind of a line from an old carly simon song wisely named anticipation is mm -hmm. that these are the good old days. Mm -hmm. Every day that we have now is the day we can look back and go, wow, in 2016, there was so much opportunity. Yes. Yes. Um, we, we, collectively, humans, particularly the younger generation, is a little bit dismayed that all the good domain names have been taken when, <laughs> when you and I were around. They were free for anybody to grab. Um, all the easy online equivalents of stores have all been done. Um, and it seems on first glance that um, all the low-hanging fruit is already occupied and the, only the most difficult things are left to do. But that's actually not true. Because, in fact, if we were to send someone back from the future, from 30 years forward to back now, they would they would tell us that the internet, you guys didn't even have the internet. You thought you had the internet, but compared to what we're going to have now, you, you hadn't even started. You didn't really have the internet then. And all the important things that we would, the big products that we're going to have in 30 years from now, haven't been invented yet. So, this, there is sort of no better time in the entire history of the universe to start something than right now. They would look back in envy 30 years from now and say, oh, I wish I had lived back in 2016 because all these things that we could do with AI and VR hadn't been done yet, and they're going to be so easy to do. And I just wish that I could have lived back here when everything's right on the dawn of this huge new thing that we're making. One of the things I like about this book is that at the end of every chapter, you give us a little mm. glimpse into right. your life 30 years in the future. And that was, those right. must have been fun parts for you to write. Yeah, so there's these. I, I end each chapter with a little scenario mm -hmm. of what life would be like in this particular um, trend in, say, 25 years. And um, I, I can't say they were fun. I say that was the hardest thing for me to write mm. because it's easy to kind of talk about things in the abstract, but as soon as you need to be specific and you're talking about something in the future, then the kind of the the kind of storytelling genes have to kick in. And I don't think I'm a born um, storyteller. So someone who writes a lot of fiction, the science fiction authors, this is what they do day in and day out. And they have an uncanny ability to just kind of um, uh, channel it. But for me, it's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, and, and I was sort of, uh, what's the word, inspired in that direction from a weekend that a bunch of us did with Steven Spielberg, mm. who was at that time mapping out his movie of what later became called Minority Report. Mm -hmm. And he had hired a bunch of us 
hired as too big of a word because we weren't paid, but he had hired a bunch of us to come down to this hotel on the beach and as a group help him devise uh, the year 2050. And the, the reason why it was genius because he didn't want these large trends. He wasn't interested in that. He had things like, well, what kind of beds are people sleeping on? What's the music? What, what, what's actually the music sound like? What about like when they have breakfast? What does that? So he wanted very, very, very specific things because, of course, they're going to have to film it. And so that kind of, of, um, of a challenge to describe in particulars things that you know are probably going to be wrong, but nonetheless that, 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 that discipline of having to be specific is very, very difficult when talking about the future, but also very powerful. By struggling with that, I came up with these scenarios, and as I said, because they're specific, they're likely to be very wrong, but at the same time, because they're specific, they're very gripping and, and, and cinematic and visual. I agree. They're really fun to read. The second trend you uh, describe is cognifying, and I love this idea that uh, for the next X years, right, right. all you have to do is just say, it's this plus AI. Right. Take... <laughs> Take something, some X, and add AI, which is kind of the recipe. That's a business strategy. That was, that was a business strategy 150 years ago for the Industrial Revolution, which is to take X and add power, mm -hmm. add artificial power, add steam power, add electricity, automate it. So, so that's, you know, you took, you took a hand pump and you added electricity and you had the electric pump took a washing machine, you made electric. I mean, that was the formula for the Industrial Revolution and all the progress that we have had. And what's interesting about that is that the people back then, the farmers who were electrifying their homesteads, they didn't have to make or generate the AI, I mean, the electricity. The electricity was something that they got off the grid. So it was a, it was a service, mm -hmm. it was a utility, it was a commodity. We had the electrical grid, which set up. And in the beginning, there were actually, like, dealing with electricity was very technical, and even companies had VPs of electricity. Wow. People who were in charge of managing this new thing, because nobody knew about it. It was very dangerous, and it was, uh, you know, it was mysterious. And um, that's where we are right now. We're basically having AI... It'll be coming over a grid. We won't generate it ourselves. We'll purchase as much AI as we want. And we'll just add it to the things that we had previously electrified. So all the things that we were now electrified, we're going to cognify and, and make the water pump a smart water pump and make um, the electrical, you know, the washing machine a smart machine. We'll make the cars smart cars. We'll, 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 we'll do... We'll make factories that are electric and powered, and we'll make them smart. So that smartness will come from this utility. It will become a commodity, and um, we will buy as much as you want. And by the way, uh, today, this very day today, you can go online, and you can go to Google, and you can purchase the Google AI, at six cents per thousand hits, they're selling AI at Google. So wow. you, you can buy it to do whatever you want to do. It's fascinating. And this takes us, too, to this idea of um, 
the idea of, well, for college. Right. When I went to college, I got a liberal arts degree, which many might consider to be fairly useless. But what I did learn from that college degree was how to learn. Exactly. And that is what we're going to do with the machines, isn't it? That's right. So one of the, it's not just that we, I, I like to think of this, I like to get away from the idea of intelligence because that's a very culturally loaded term and people have a preconception of what artificial intelligence is. I think mostly what we're going to be dealing with is artificial smartness mm -hmm. and artificial learning. And so Google, this Google AI, Google taught one of their AIs how to learn how to play a video game. Now, teaching AI to play a video game is actually quite easy, and there are a lot of people who have done it. But that's not what they did. They taught it how to learn how to play the game. So they just showed it the game and let it learn how to play the game by itself. And these were early 70 games, pretty pretty simple like Pong. And it um, the AI learned how to beat humans probably within a day of, of playing itself, learning how to play. And so um, that idea of artificial learning is very, very, very powerful. So just as we have learned, a lot of this AI is called unsupervised learning where we don't, you don't even train it what to do. You just say, here's the problem, you figure it out. And that's extremely powerful. We can't do that very well yet, but we have some progress in that, and that that's where we're headed to, is, is, is that we could also have artificial learning. You know, that reminds me of something I read a long time ago in a Stanislaw Lem article. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he says is that we eventually gave up on trying to create artificial intelligence and decided instead to try to create artificial instinct. Because mm -hmm. artificial instinct instinct appeared a long time before intelligence did, and it was pretty damn useful. Uh, and he says the instincts of a wasp could probably drive a truck across the country. That's actually true. In fact, that was um, Rodney Brooks, who's the robot researcher at MIT Media Lab. That's what his take on was, is that most of like how an organism walks, like the insects walks, the intelligence for that walking was not in their head, it was in their legs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so um, there, there's also uh, a lot of people talk about when, you know, when will uh, AIs and stuff get emotion. Well, in fact, emotions preceded intelligence, and it's actually a lot easier to program in emotions mm. before intelligence. So in a certain sense, you'll have emotional machines long before we have intelligent machines. Now that's pretty scary. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> One of the ideas you have in here is this idea of a centaur. Mm. I thought that was a really fascinating idea. Yeah, the, 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 the centaur was actually the idea of Garry Kasparov, who was the world chess champion from Russia, who was pitted against um, the AI from IBM, the Deep Blue, about at least a decade ago. And um, Kasparov was the, has the honor of being the human chess master who lost to the first loss to the AI. So the um, Deep Blue AI beat Kasparov in the chess champion. And, and Kasparov later on came back and said, you know, that was sort of unfair because Deep Blue had access to every single chess mood ever played. And if I had had access to that same database, I would have won. So he decided to make a new chess league it's like the free, I think it's called the Freestyle Chess League. And it's like the martial arts freestyle where you can play 
any martial art that you want against any other martial art, you know, judo or jujitsu or Thai kickboxing, it doesn't matter. So in his league, you could play chess as either a grand chess master or as an AI or what he called the centaur, which is the human plus the AI. And what's interesting is the last couple of years, the world's chess champion is not a human and is not an AI. It's a centaur. It's a team of human plus AI. And I would predict that in a few years from now, the best Go player is not going to be an AI and it won't be a human. It'll be a human plus AI. And right now, the best diagnostic, medical diagnostic is not a doctor. It's not Watson from IBM. It is a doctor plus Watson. And so in a certain sense, this idea that we're going to work with AIs is really where we're going. And my suggestion is that in the future, people will be paid by how well you work with AIs. Because kind of like the AI whisperer, being able to <laughs> understand how they think and being able to work with them. And we see that, you know, kind of like power searchers who understand how Google works and stuff. That's, that's a kind of a little hint of where we're going to go. I like this idea, too, that you have about that we need to toss out our preconceptions of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And especially this idea that I like the idea, the vision of the smart car that we want. We don't want it to be so smart that right. it's worried about an argument it had with the garage. Right. I think we might even <laughs> advertise certain kind of artificial smartness or minds as being conscious free. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, okay, consciousness right, free. free. Right. Sure. Exactly, because sure. they aren't going to be distracted. So. So because so actually I think we'll, not only will we not put them in, but again we may actually make that into a feature. And you too have this suggestion, which I think is one of the many super brilliant things mm. in this book: AI, not artificial intelligence, alien intelligence. Right, and so to not from another planet. Right, right. So the idea is is that um, one of the mis kind of misunderstandings that our own intelligence has about our own intelligence is that there is a single dimension and that you can kind of map intelligence like IQ where you have kind of a mouse and a rat and then there's a little bit more kind of volume in a chimpanzee and then there's a not so smart person and then there's an average person and then there's a genius and Einstein and then there's a super intelligence and that there's this kind of one long uh, vector that just gets louder and louder and that's totally wrong. That's just completely wrong image of our own scale of intelligence. What's truer is that we humans have a symphony of different instruments, and each of those instruments is a different kind of intelligence, a different mode, a, a different note. And some of it may be analytical reasoning, deductive reasoning, recall, um, spatial intelligence, um, you know, speculative intelligence, emotional intelligence, all these things in, in this whole kind of bundle. And um, everybody's has a little different mix, slightly different, but even animals have a mix and they may even have some of the same instruments as we have. And they, some of those instruments may even be superior in the sense that rats may excel us in their ability for spatial navigation. And, you're, and when we make AIs, the same thing is we'll engineer them to have um, more specialized instruments will be even greater than ours, and we have that already. Your calculator is 
exceeds you in your arithmetic ability, your arithmetic intelligence. So, so we are going to make these artificial intelligence not be like humans we, on purpose. So we want the car. We don't want the car to drive like a human, so we're going to make it not like <laughs> Not human. like me. And um, the entire point for many of these AIs is that they think differently than humans. Mm -hmm. That's why we're making them like that. And so most of the AIs we're going to make will be thinking differently than humans. And part of our challenge will be to kind of inhabit, to populate that possibility space of all the different ways you can make intelligence and all the many thousands of species of minds. And you could think of them almost as, as if they were aliens from another planet who think differently. And uh, I, that's why I like to call them kind of artificial aliens because um, they would almost serve the same purpose in our here as we would if we had alien intelligences working on problems. This takes us to flowing. Yeah. And this is a, begins with a very simple act that's born into base of every damn computer that ever was that it's really good at copying and stuff. Right, right, right. So talk about how this third phase of computing, flowing, streams, mm -hmm. copies, instant results, and, you know, it's, it's, it's leads us to things like just-in-time purchasing. Yeah, so um, uh, there's lots, lots of ways to think about this, but one of them is sort of that there's been three organizational metaphors that we've had with computing in the you know 50 years that we've had it or more. Um, and the first one was that we used the, the office metaphor, so things were organized. We had a desktop. We had files, we had folders, uh, and we kind of imported the, 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 the office from the 50s as the metaphor for understanding how to navigate through this. And the second organizational metaphor was the, the web, which so we had um, pages and links and tags, and that served us very well. And there was also other attributes of, you know, of, of timing involved in there. Then, but the third, the third regime where we are right now is, is a new metaphor, and that is this um, idea that the data is flowing and that we have updates that are streamed, and we stream music, and we stream movies, and we have streams of Twitter, we have streams of, of photos and Instagram, and that um, there is this kind of live streaming where things are all arranged chronological, and there's one endless stream, and we just add to the be, to the uh, last to the end with the new stuff, and then where my stream intersects your stream, and we have a an event, and so that idea of the flowing of, of data becomes a new metaphor for understanding what we're doing, and as we enter into this world where we generate these huge volumes of data, we also realize that data, in order to be valuable, has to be has to move. It has to be moved. It has to be connected to other things that just sort of capturing data and putting it on a disk and keeping it dark is some of the worst fate for, for, for a bit. What bits really kind of want in that sort of sense is to be connected to move, to constantly be moving. And so this movement of data through our lives and through the machines is the flows. And that also is somewhat reflected in the fact that 
we've moved from a world of being people of the book, where the data was printed on paper and was fixed, and the book was finished and didn't change, and that monumental work became an authority, and that authority kind of ruled our lives. And now we have screens where things flow across the screens. They're ever-changing. They disappear once they've been shown. Um, there is this ephemeral flitter as things move through the stream, and that that affects our idea of what is true because we no longer have the authors and authorities to tell us, and so we have to assemble our own sense of what's true from all these facts and counterfacts and anti-facts and all the things that are kind of constantly moving across and flowing across the screen. So the screen, now that we're people of the screen instead of people of the book, have their own logic that also shapes our culture. And our culture has to um, deal with deciding what's true, what's, what's fair, what's um, worthwhile in a completely different way than when we had the fixed monumental bits sitting on pages of paper. I think this connects to what, to my mind, is one of the essential uh, features of humanity, maybe the defining feature of humanity, is that we're a narrative species and that uh, as one of your, uh, you quote uh, somebody who says, the universe isn't made of atoms, it's made, made of, of stories. stories. <laughs> and yes. I think that is extremely profound. Right, right. And that's why data has to move. It has right, to be, right, right, right. it doesn't, as yeah. it's got to be part of a story, part right, of a narrative. Right, right, right. Yeah, that narr narrative has in its own logic this idea of you moving forward from, you know, first act, second act, third act. You're just kind of, there's an arc, they call it. Exactly. Right, so there's an arc. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, in the best cases, that movement has an arc, but I have to say that a lot of the movement doesn't have an arc. It's just moving around. But um, if you can take uh, the flow and give the flow an arc, you have a story mm -hmm. and, or a narrative, and that's really very, very powerful. Um, in the same way that um, I haven't thought about this before, but there's this kind of um, uh, hierarchy of climbing of, of, of um, powers from, what does it go, inf information, data, knowledge, wisdom? Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's something kind of like you know, there's there's flows, something, and then a narrative arc. Yeah, where, incident, incident. Where the, you know, there's a flow. There's a kind of a flow without direction, a flow with direction, a flow with an arc, and there's this kind of moving up through the flows, um, similar to moving up through the data. I like and, that idea. Yeah. Um, so I I, I think um, you're right that um, intuitively these flows of data and 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 it uh, resonates with us because we are hardwired to respond to to a narrative arc and this takes us to screening um i i love uh this idea you i mean we are headed towards a borgesian world the universal library is is, is we pretty much have it now yeah yeah and so the universal library was described by uh, um, Borges as this um, infinite library where one room of a library with related books would lead to another and it was kind of infinite. If It was this, in every direction the books went on and on and every possible variation of a book. So there was the book and then there was all the variations of that book next to one another. And I think um, 
the volume of what we're creating can at times appear to be infinite. Or I think just music alone, was it 60 million new songs created every year? It's phenomenal. There was just, if you look at the number of books, uh, you know, even though books seem to be over, there are more titles being written every year. And at some point, every person alive will be writing a book on, on average. Um, or creating a song, or, or now making a video. And um, so this volume of stuff, the creations, overwhelms our single individual ability to consume it. And, um, you know, we don't even have time even to, like, read the list of everything that's been made, <laughs> let alone evaluate it. And so we are going to require um, new technologies new uh, jobs and tasks in helping us to navigate through the good stuff, to get to the good stuff. Not just the good stuff, but the good stuff just for us, and not just the good stuff just for us, but the good stuff for us today. And so that challenge is, um, is, is a real opportunity, something that hasn't been done yet that can be done into the future. But we are going to more and more rely on others to kind of help us decide what it is that we like. Because we don't even know in, this, exactly. in terms of this possibility space. We don't even know what we like. And part of what these filters are going to do is actually help us to discover what it is that we like. I, and that's one of the things this book made me think again and again is that reviewers mm. and critics are essentially going to attend a position of importance yes. that they have never before had exactly. in history. Exactly, right, right. Yeah, so, so the, the, these are no longer, I mean... One of the myths about this emerging shareable world where people say, well, I don't need an editor. I, I don't need a newspaper to be a news, to generate news. I can do it myself. So this I bottom up, the kind of whole idea of the peer-to-peer -peer mm. people writing content that is going directly to their fans. And I've talked a little bit about it not in this book about the thousand true fans idea and so this is a true thing i mean it really is happening where people can creators can go directly to the fans and they don't need the publishers they don't need the labels they don't need the studios but what we do need is one of the functions that those labels and studios and publishers um acted as it was not just the, the banks and the and the early the um, distributors, but they actually served as as filters as well, mm -hmm. and that we do need. And so some of them will return or, or remain as as filters for us, as curators we call it. Um, but we do need this middle layer of this intermediate layer to help us get through it. So we can't just rely on just the fans going directly to the creators and the creators to the fans because the volume of what's available is just overwhelming. So we will have another, we will have other layers in between us, but they aren't necessarily in the same roles that the publishers and the studios and the labels have been. I found that your chapter on this idea of accessing both a powerfully convincing argument and deeply disturbing mm. because well thank you <laughs> to me it, you seem to i'm i i think that maybe you're a little bit diffident on the on how much you welcome some of the things mm -hmm, in this mm -hmm, book mm -hmm. but you say well this is going to happen and 
what whether you like it or not. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and accessing, <laughs> I'm more on the not side because to me it feels like the it's the ultimate conquest of capitalism. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think so. So like, we haven't got to it, but I'm sure you will. But yeah, there are things coming like total surveillance tracking that are inevitable, and um, this is a scary idea. This is uh, can be done well, or it could just be hellish. And so, um, so yeah, so, so there, I'm not, again, I'm not a utopian. The, some of the things coming are going to be quite challenging. Mm. Um, the idea of kind of having this overwhelming world of stuff and having difficulty even finding what we want, um, I'm not faced by it because I think we will make the tools. Um, having a world where everything is tracked um, requires some big changes in our society in order to make that civil but things that we haven't done yet that we would have to do mm. in order to make this at all tolerable uh you talk about uh dematerialization yeah i love that idea and the beer can was <laughs> a great I, yeah. great uh, vision of it so tell a little bit about the beer can and about the way stuff is turning into process dematerialization is um something that has been going on for many years, and we can show that very clearly in, uh, in measurements and evidence looking at the economy. Um, the, the, the central idea is that we, we substitute intangible things like design or intelligence, and we put them into the things that we make so that we use less atoms, less stuff, to perform the same service or even better service. So the weight of things like a beer can continue to drop, um, even though the the can, what it does, is actually doing it better. So we can extend that to all kinds of other things. You know, cars say that weigh less and they drive further, better, um, uh, faster. And um, the general drift over time is that we um, substitute atoms with intelligence and um, the intangibles around intelligence. And I think that's going to continue into the future as we go forward. You talk about remixing. Yeah. And this is, uh, we're seeing a lot of this now, and the idea of remixing. In a sense, it's not old. I mean, in that people have always been uh, copying uh, one another's stuff for a long time. the difference now is that we can do it precisely. We, it's not just like you're stealing a plot line like from Shakespeare, which yeah, yeah. everybody since has done. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, so, so the remixing thing is, is kind of based on an observation that of two of the best new economists working, trying to understand where, our, where the wealth around t- technologies society has come from. And, and their observation is, is that we actually very rarely ever invent something new. Most ideas, most innovations, most inventions, most wealth is coming from reordering, recombining things that already exist. And not just in the primitives, like you take A and B, but then you, once you have A and B, you can make AB. So you can take AB plus A, and then you can take AAB plus C. And so you can kind of, you can add things in aggregate as well. And that um, what the digital world is allowing us to do is to... um, unbundle things to, to, to get to the primitive elements of things that we can then recombine. 
So it's not just being able to recombine them, but it's also being able to kind of uncombine them in order to recombine them later. So the, the things are so fungible and malleable and um, manipulable in the digital world that it is very easy to kind of like break things down into their parts and then recombine them. An example would be uh, a newspaper, which was a very complicated product in a certain sense. It had headlines and it had pictures and it had uh, weather reports and it had stock quotes and it had box scores from the um, sports and it had ads and, and it had classifieds and all these things were the elements of this product called newspaper. And in the digital world, you can kind of undo those things and recombine them or sell them as an individual uh, product or service. So you have classifieds, which became you know Craigslist, which itself was just this thing. And then you can un you could then de unbundle Craigslist into its parts, and then recombine those with other things. You could take the jobs in Monster.com, and you can add it to the map of Google and show where the jobs are. So the what's new is this ability to um, unmix things and mix them very, very fast. Things that we could do in the past, but only with a lot of effort, only with a great deal of trouble, only only um, training too. In training, and now we can do that very fast, very quickly, and keep recombining them. And so the general pattern is is that we're going to take things that we didn't even realize could be unbundled or unmixed, and then uh, dissect them into their constituent primeval parts, and then recombine them in many, many ways in the future. And a lot of the wealth will be made by by this kind of remixing. The entire world will be turned into a karaoke bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind uh, of like Legos. Think of these as Legos. Um, I, you talk about uh, VR. Yeah. Um, this is a will allow us. It's a you call it. This is interacting. This will become more and more important because we'll at the very base of that is people. Yeah, so, so my hypothesis is, uh, having spent a lot of time even beyond the book, excuse me, um, writing about, or researching about VR, is that VR as a platform, as it emerges, as it becomes more mature, say in 10, 15 years, that it will become the most social of all the social media. And that is, is in my experience of being in VR, Having other people in it was far more interesting than having beautiful objects, having wonderful worlds. That there was a real attraction to having the presence of others that you can share with. And, you know, we, we have things like Skype now and FaceTime where you can kind of see someone else. We, we understand that, that seeing them is a little bit superior than just hearing them on the phone. Well, in virtual reality, when you have this uh, goggles on or the spectacles and you... Um, encounter the presence of another person it's 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 much much more powerful it's almost another level of power so th what you get with these VR systems is that you get the presence of things and other people they 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 may not look exactly real but they feel exactly present so their their presence is real 
and it, there's a kind of a trick that this technology plays on your mind. So that, that presence is being assembled in your brain. It's your brain that is giving you that sense and not the brain that tells you how to think. Because you can say, you, I, I know that I'm just sitting in this room, but I feel like I'm sitting on the edge of a cliff. I know that I'm just sitting in this room, but I feel as if this person is here. Even if they don't look exactly like my friend, I feel as if my friend is right here. And that experience is really the fundamental thing that we will be sharing. And we're going to be kind of downloading experiences, sharing experiences, buying experiences. So I'm suggesting that the way we'll think of the Internet is that it will move from this Internet that is mostly about information, the Internet of Information, all the stuff that we were talking about. And it's going to become the Internet of Experiences. That's what we're going to go to. And so it becomes this thing where we have experiences with other people being the prime thing that we want. Kevin Kelly is right here with you. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and the thing about it is that really surprised me was there are, seemed to be kind of like an elemental, uh, elementary three things that were sufficient to give you that. So, again, you, you have these goggles on, and you're seeing things in three dimensions. Um, and um, if, I, if you're sitting here with me, um, the, the thing that really convinces me that you're there, one is to see, to see you in three dimensions, that's good. But it's because when you are moving your body wherever you are, your avatar is reflecting all your body language. Okay, so it may not look exactly like you, maybe a little bit cartoony, maybe not photorealistically there, but all the all your body language is there. Sure, yeah. That, and then secondly, you have your voice. So I hear your voice, which is, can be done very well. And then the eye contact. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at me, following me, and have micro-expressions on your eyes, which we can capture, then even if you are not 100% like, you know, resolution proof like that, I will believe that you are there. And that presence is extremely powerful. It's weird how powerful it is. It's kind of like um, the way that cinema tricks our mind into believing that Mickey Mouse is throwing a ball and the ball crosses the screen, even though there's no movement at all. Those are just a 24 still images in a row. Mm. But we would swear that that ball really moved. So that's, that's assembled in our brain in the same sense. You're not there, but all these little tricks of technology convinces me that I would swear that you really were there. I've been speaking with Kevin Kelly. His new book is The Inevitable, and it is inevitable that you should read it. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Kevin. Oh, it's really been my pleasure. It's so much fun talking to you, and I really respect and honor your way of reading, which is very deep. I know you showed me the book full of little tabs and dog ears, and um, there's nothing that makes an author happier than having a reader who really reads the books. Thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.